Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us. Today on the show, we're going to talk a little about sugar beets, a crop we don't often get to here on the show, but we will spend some time on that today. If you've got any questions about sugar beets or anything else going on in your farm, you can give us a call here, 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. You can also email us, radio at agphd.com, or send us a note on Twitter, agphdmedia, Darren Hefty, or Brian Hefty. All right, so we're going to get to the Ag PhD mailbag in just a minute here, but before we do, a couple of quick things on sugar beets. I, I would say it's definitely a different crop than a lot of farmers in our region raise corn and soybeans, in part because there are a lot of dollars at stake with sugar beets, and it used to be a much bigger spread. When corn and soybeans were cheap, there were, there were a lot of dollars there at stake for sugar beets. Well, now that corn and beans are up, I mean, the number is way up on sugar beets as well. So a lot of dollars, and it requires a lot of management. It's very challenging in terms of diseases, even to some degree insects, weed control. Sugar beets are, are pretty sensitive to a lot of the stresses that we get, at least in our region of the country. But sugar beets can be tremendously successful, and I, I guess i just say I applaud the guys that raise them because it's a lot of work. It's really a lot of work, and there's a tremendous amount of risk there. So hopefully we'll help alleviate a little bit of the risk with our discussion today and talk about just some general management practice and things like that. But right now, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's the mailbag! All right, first question uh, comes from Terry up in Northwest Ohio, and I love Terry's uh, thinking here. He goes, I'm planting winter wheat, and I want to add manganese and boron into my dry fertilizer application. My soil tests all show low. What I'm wondering is how much more than crop removal can I apply before I start hurting germination or have any other unintended consequences? I'm probably more limited in the how much I want to spend than what the crop can stand, but I know how much I'm willing to spend. Just curious, how, how much could I put out if money was no object? Lots of manganese. I'm assuming it's manganese sulfate. That one I'm not so worried about. The boron, you got to be really careful. One of the things we've started going by here in the last few years has been a thousand to one calcium to boron. So in other words, if let's say you've got 2000 parts per million of calcium and you've only got one part per million of boron, well, you could get, you could throw another part per million out there, which is a couple pounds of actual. So that that's the one you got to be careful with. The other thing you really need to be careful with is when you start mixing micronutrients together with some other big blend of dry, uh, you got to make sure the stuff isn't going to settle out or rise to the top. What I mean by that is if we're looking at different bulk densities, you got different particle sizes, everything, um, you, you can end up with some problems. That has happened to people in the past where they get to the field and all the boron for the whole field goes out in the first 100 feet. Well, obviously then the first 100 feet is dead and the rest of the field is short on boron. So on our own farm, we typically spread boron all by itself 
or we've got a separate bin for it so we know exactly when and where that boron is going out in the field when we're spreading dry. So just be careful with that one in particular. All right, thanks for the question, Terry. Uh, get this one in from Will and uh, asking about crop residue breakdown. When you're in your crop residue breakdown discussion, one thing came to mind. How about developing machinery to break residue into finer pieces? Just curious, is anyone working on something like that, or is there a tool out there you'd recommend? Just trying to create more soil to residue contact for biology to break it down faster. Well, sure. So we use chopping corn heads on our own farm when we talk about corn, for example. Soybeans, it's small and it doesn't really amount to much anyway. Plus the fact with soybeans, we run the head pretty much right on the ground. So we are getting everything to some degree chopped up. And yes, it does make for a lot faster breakdown, that's for sure. With the well, prior to having chopping corn heads, we would run a stock chopper across the ground. And we've done that not just in corn, but in other crops as well, running a stock chopper. So, yes, there certainly are pieces of equipment out there that will do that. If nothing else, a person could run some type of coulter machine to chop things up, too. So lots of ways to do it. All right. Thanks for the question. Got this from John, and he said, guys, I'm from Pennsylvania. I find it interesting you mentioned the wood shavings when you were talking about farm trash and that you could uh, shred uh, wood into chips and potentially apply them to fields. Just curious. I've got plenty of wood chips that a power company gives me for free. My thought is if I let them sit for five years or so, they would eventually become nice soil. What's your thought on utilizing wood chips? My thought is I don't want to do it because it ties up my nitrogen like bad. So you got to be really careful about something that is such high carbon material as that. And will letting it sit there for five years solve the problem? I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm no expert on that. I haven't tried that myself. But I do know this, that if you put a whole bunch of wood chips out in your field and you don't put a lot of extra nitrogen out there to help the bacteria break those wood chips down, you're going to see nitrogen deficiency in your crop. That has happened to us, fortunately, only in a small scale where we're doing some plot work and it's like, whoa, that's a, that's a, that's a big difference there. So we got to be really careful with wood chips. Yeah, and I think it's something where you could look at composting those somehow. If you ground them into wood shavings, for example, perhaps combining them with manure or something else might end up uh, balancing out that carbon and nitrogen ratio. Just have to look at that a little bit and see what you could do. Like Brian mentioned, too much carbon, you're going to tie up nitrogen. That's tough. And to get the microbes to break things down, unless they've got a nitrogen source, it's pretty hard for them to, to do that in short order. Thanks for the feedback, though, and the question. Appreciate that, John. We're going to talk about sugar beets on today's show, and our phone lines will be open throughout for your agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. We'll be right back. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. Pentair Hypro Ultra Low Drift Nozzles are your ideal choice for the Enlist E3 herbicide system. With coverage comparable to flat fans and with 90% less drift, ULD nozzles meet all required standards for Enlist applications and provide optimal performance of contact herbicides. Learn more at pentair.com slash hypro. 
It came on a night like any other, with power unlike anything else on Earth. Using beyond advanced active ingredients like bicyclopyrone, Acuron GT post-emergence corn herbicide is here to annihilate tough weeds. Advanced technology, enhanced control. Talk to your Syngenta retailer about Acuron GT. Always read and follow label instructions. If you've ever wondered how the Farmall got its name, here's an abbreviated list of the jobs the Case IH Farmall can do. Baling, cutting hay, feeding, hauling, loading, pulling, raking, cleaning barn, mixing feed, fertilizing, mowing, chopping, seeding, clearing, irrigating, furrowing, cultivating, hitching, digging, emergency tow, harrowing, hoisting, leading parades, excavating, grading. <sighs> Let's make it simple. This tractor does it all. So no matter what you're doing, can do comes in red. Farmall. Learn more at caseih.com slash farmall. If we only had 20 words to talk about Ag Biome, we would say we are agricultural innovators focused on unlocking the power of the microbial world to deliver unique, effective crop protection solutions. If we only had five words, we'd say learn more at agbiome.com. Get an extra semi-load out of your grain bin. The Enzone from FarmShop MFG can increase your stored beans moisture from 10 to 13%. On a 20,000 bushel bin, that's a free extra semi-load. Visit farmshopmfg.com for more. listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're broadcasting from the Morton Studio talking about sugar beets on today's program and taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Got Trevor Israel with us right now with Valent to talk a little about sugar beets. How you doing, Trevor? I'm doing well, thank you. You know, when it comes to managing beets, uh, it there are less options than in some other crops, but there are still some decent options out there in terms of weed control, insects, diseases, just a lot of different things we can do to try to protect that crop and, and help it reach top yields. Uh, what are some of the things, I guess, when you talk to growers about sugar beets, Trevor, where, where do you start that discussion? Uh, well, with um, some of our product lineup, um, that's more or less uh, the, the pest management wrap. We just launched a, a new product in sugar beets. It's an Excalia fungicide for managing Rhizoctonia. Um, and that can be a, that's a foliar-applied fungicide uh, for Rhizoctonia, um, targeting uh, that two- to eight-leaf stage. Um, the uh, active ingredient will also have registered as a seed treatment uh, for Rhizoctonia management as well. Um, you know, of course, with the uh, recent uh, uh, removal of use for, for Lord's band or clopyrifos, that, um, you know, that puts a lot of added pressure on some of the other insecticides. And uh, we have Nipsid in there for seed treatment, which is close to anodine to help uh, with some of those uh, in, uh, insects at planting, uh, the, uh, mainly sugar beet root maggot. But of course, um, you know, the, the adults with the uh, uh, more focus on some of the pyrethroids as well. We have a, a Sana XL labeled in sugar beets. So, um, you know, those are two big problems in the uh, major sugar beet uh, production areas, the sugar beet root maggot as, as well as the um, uh, rhizoctonia management there. Yeah, you mentioned the Excalia, and uh, talk about that one just a little bit, because like you, you mentioned, it's getting used in a lot of different ways. It's been some pretty powerful chemistry. Uh, talk to us about that particular one. How does it work? Uh, what what mode of action are we looking at? And and talk a little more about the Rhizoc. 
Okay, so the um, Excalia, that's uh, as our um, active ingredient is uh, the uh, endoflin, um, I guess is, is the uh, um, kind of the uh, the trade name that we have, our, our um, trademarked uh, active ingredient. The actual active ingredient is Empirofloxum, but it's it's a new SDHI herbicide. It's a uh, newer generation, uh, similar, similar to some of the other um, SDHIs that have... Um, kind of common structural similarities, um, very powerful, powerful at low use rates. Um, the seed treatment, we add a, a loading onto the seed and it's actually very low um, active ingredient loaded onto the, the individual seed. Uh, low use rate with the, the foliar applied as well, it's SDHI. Um, it has a limited, um, it has some uh, translaminar movement, um, so it can really uh, uh, move uh, to the underside of leaves and move down in, into the uh, the crown there with the, um, you know, when it develops into the, the, the crown rot from the rhizoctonius. So um, very powerful, low use rates, um, you band or broadcast applications, um, you know, like I said, targeting that two to eight leaf stage, and that's typically where we see the soil start to, to warm up. With the the rhizoctonia starting to to take uh, uh, really starting to, to grow at that point and really starting to uh, proliferate at that stage. So uh, um, researching some tank mixes with that. I know that's a uh, 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 a concern with growers. Um, preliminary data show says we uh, um, aren't um, you know making some of the current tank mix partners any worse. I know a lot of some of the um, Tank mixes, uh, a lot of products you apply to sugar beets uh, can tend to uh, um, cause some flashing on their own, but we haven't seen where it's any any additional injury with some of our tank mixes. So uh, we'll continue to uh, uh, do research on that because I know it's a, it's a big concern for growers out there. Yeah, absolutely. That fungicide program that, that growers use on sugar beets, very, very important. Worried about resistance building up. Also like to get lots of different modes of action out there and a number of different shots at it to really protect that crop throughout the season to maximize tonnage and maximize sugar production as well. Talking with Trevor Israel here with Valence, just a little bit about Excalia and some of the other things that the Valent works with on sugar beets. Trevor, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. Uh, let's go to North Dakota. Got Ken Dober down with us right now with BASF. Ken, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, guys. I appreciate uh, having us on the air today. You know, one of the challenges about being in North Dakota is you got to be an expert in a whole bunch of different crops because uh, North Dakota farmers, for, for folks who haven't traveled up there, uh, it's a fun state to go through because you're going to see a bunch of different crops on farms and, and farmers really diversify. One of them that they've done really well with has been sugar beets. Uh, what are some of the unique challenges in, in your geography, Ken, uh, up in North Dakota and up into western Minnesota with raising sugar beets? Yeah, Darren, like you said, very crop diverse up here. Uh, no question about it. Sugar beets a bit unique uh, crop for us, uh, not for us in the local area, but uh, in the country-wise. Uh, but yeah, it's short season. I think that's the biggest challenge for everybody. And sugar beets much different than taking a corn, soybean, wheat, or typical row crop off where it's standing above ground. We're actually having to pull these beets uh, out of the soil and uh, wet soils, which we do not have this year. Uh, fortunately, I think these guys are very thankful for this easy, so to speak, harvest uh, this year. But uh, the wet soils and wet conditions 
that go along with our short season uh, can certainly be uh, present some challenges for these guys every in every any given year. You know, we were just talking about some of the pests and diseases that can impact sugar beets, but it's really a season-long process. I know uh, some of the crops that I, I know we talk about corn a lot. Well, you got a few times of the year that you're really worried about stuff in corn. And then I would say there's a few weeks in there that you probably aren't worried about much, but it seems like sugar beets, every single leaf that comes out, guys are pretty excited about, man, we got to protect stuff. We got new foliage out here. So how how complex are the the fungicide programs going into this year? Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of the same and and some different, I guess, is how I would present this. But Cercospora leaf spot is is by far still the most challenging disease that we see in sugar beets in any given year. Granted, things like Rhizoctonia, the soil uh, disease spectrum, can present some some challenges in any given year as well. But Cercospora leaf spot, and and typically what we see is when we have above average temperatures, warmer than normal temperatures, and above normal precip is when we get our heaviest cercosper years. And uh, furthermore, we also get our some of our biggest yields in these heavy cercosper years, which we did we did not have this year. Uh, I would call this a, a normal to, to, in some cases, much lower uh, cercosper year. But uh, again, we had the warm temps, but uh, we didn't always have the free moisture available, especially as you got into the latter part of the season when it dried off. Uh, that we would in any you know any typical year, and so that certainly kept the cercospor pressure in check. But yeah, fungicide programs, uh, you know, in terms of ro- rotating these uh, various chemistries is is critically important in sugar beets. Uh, we have these what are called CR plus uh, traded sugar beets in the marketplace now, and and what that really what that stands for is cercospor resistant, but uh, beta seed brought forward or KWS, the umbrella company, if you will, brought forward these CR plus beets. And uh, the idea behind this is, is not to stop spraying fungicides, obviously, but uh, more or less a reduction in fungicide sprays. And, and these, these beets look pretty good. Uh, we've, these growers have been able to uh, keep cercospor in check uh, with the trait in conjunction with, with products like Provosol fungicide, uh, that we would typically recommend early in that spray season and then follow that up with Preaxor or something like Headline uh, late season for plant health and to increase storage benefits, you know, reducing the, the uh, CO2 and those those beet piles throughout the winter that they they critically count on, uh, keeping those beets froze all year uh, throughout the winter and, and so that we've got a good product to work with in the spring. And then just increasing sugar, and that's really our, our common goal in any of these products is to get the most sugar per acre out of that sugar beet crop. Yeah, it's an interesting crop, no doubt about that, when we're talking about sugar beets. we got Ken Delbert with us right now with BASF. Ken, thank you so much. We really appreciate all the info, and, and good luck to you here as uh, the season progresses. Thanks, Darren. Greatly appreciate you having us on. You bet. Talking sugar beets on today's show, as you can tell, uh, lots of good tips here that can be applied to a number of different crops. We'll have a little more for you coming up right after this. It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutrition and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. 
When it comes to mites in your field, you can't afford a solution that might work. That's why there's Zealpro Miticide from Valent USA. With next-level knockdown and long residual control, you can be sure to handle spider mites at all stages of life with complete certainty. With efficient translaminar activity, apply by ground or air, and confidently attack mites where they are. Make Zealpro the definitive answer to your mite problem. Visit valent.com zealpro to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. It changes everything. So says Indiana corn grower Nathan Davis about innovative Zyway LFR fungicide from FMC. Zyway brand fungicides are the first and only at-plant corn fungicides to provide unprecedented, season-long, inside-out foliar disease protection. Discover more grower and retailer success stories at zyway.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Ag PhD has one mission, to give you the knowledge you need to make your farm more successful. That's why every issue of the Ag PhD Insider Magazine features crop fertility and pest management tips, insights into the world's highest yielding farmers, updates and results from our infield research trials, as well as the latest agronomy information from Brian and Darren Hefty. We put it all in one place so you can make your farm more productive and profitable. Subscribe to the Ag PhD Insider at agphdinsider.com. The value of your farm building is in its ability to protect what's stored inside. That's why Morton Buildings ensures that every machine storage and insulated workshop we build will provide superior strength and durability. As a 100% employee-owned company, we're all committed to being the industry leader with a focus on innovation, service, quality, and most importantly, customer satisfaction. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, man, I am super excited about our next guest. We're talking about sugar beet production, and who better to have on than Muhammad Khan up at North Dakota State University. Muhammad, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me, sir. All right. You, I, I just constantly see information that you're putting out on sugar beets, and, and uh, like I said, I'm super excited to have you on today. Uh, there's some new stuff going on. What, what are some of the newer things on sugar beets that you've been working on this year? Uh, this year we, and last year, we've been working on controlling a major foliar disease uh, called Sarcospora leaf spot. In 2016, we had the fungus develop resistance to most of the fungicides we are using, and our growers lost over $200 million that year. Since then, I've been working with using old, what I call old multi-site fungicides, and mixing them with the newer chemistries to help control the disease. And we were working with a seed company uh, from Germany with um, subsidiary in the US called Beta Seed. Uh, they have developed uh, some new germplasm that are called the CR plus varieties that have 
very much improved tolerance to sarcose per leaf spot. So by using these new varieties and less fungicides in a timely manner, uh, we're better able to manage sarcose per leaf spot. Yeah, that is a huge one, no doubt about that. I, I, I saw that you had some published work about sclerotinia and and uh, root rot. We were and wondering leaf why. Yes, I, I want <laughs> I want to know more about this. We worry about sclerotinia in uh, soybeans a lot, and and in some of the other crops, uh, edible beans and and so forth. Uh, but in sugar beets, I, I guess I didn't realize what a problem that could be too. Yeah, it's kind of a strange uh, situation. We've been planting sugar beets in the valley since 1926, and you've always heard about sclerotinia or white mold in soybean, in sunflower, in canola, and never in sugar beet. And it just so happened around 2019, we were doing some uh, field work, saw some plants with some strange symptoms, brought them in, and found out that it was sclerotinia. And it's the exact same sclerotinia that affects the other crops in the rotation that's also affecting sugar beets. Unfortunately for sugar beet, it affects both the leaves foliarly as well as the roots. And some, in some varieties, it can really reduce yield by about 15 to 20% when it impacts the leaves. And when it um, affects the root, guess what? Each plant where the root is affected, each plant will die. So it can be real serious. So it's brand new for us. And we're now trying to figure out what we can do in terms of fungicides to use. And we will start to evaluate our varieties to see their um, resistance to this new pathogen. We have done some initial work, and it does not appear that any of our varieties have, have um, inherent resistance to this particular pathogen. Yeah, that is not good. It is no fun to fight in those other crops. And I don't want to just have to raise corn and wheat. <laughs> I'd like to have some of those other crops yeah. in the rotation. We need some sugar to make our life a little bit sweeter, don't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, let's talk about something else. Nematodes. That's something that I know a lot of growers are kind of curious about. And, and I've heard that nematode tests have shown there's a, a pretty good amount of nematodes in parts of North Dakota and parts of the Valley. What do you see in terms of nematode issues? and sugar beets, is that something growers are trying to manage for right now? Uh, we're all, we've always been doing some uh, sampling and some monitoring for nematodes. Uh, we are fortunate that in sugar beet, we do not have any nematodes. The soybean cyst nematode is a very close relative of sugar beet cyst nematode. And we do have soybean cyst nematode in several areas of the Red River Valley. So we are somewhat apprehensive, but to date, um, we do not have the sugar beet cyst nematode in the valley. In the western North Dakota and in eastern Montana, we do have some nematode issues there. But right now, uh, we can do it one less problem. <laughs> That's good. That's good. There's plenty. Okay, how about we switch gears? Talk about something positive. How about natural or biological type products? Have you done much work on uh, some of the beneficial fungi or beneficial uh, microbes that could be used to help sugar beets? Yes, in my job, I kind of try to use all the tools, evaluate all the tools so we can kind of uh, use what's safe, what's available, what's economical. Unfortunately, for the major diseases of sugar beet, uh, none of the biologicals that we have used have shown uh, what I would consider as significant help or contribution to managing these pests. 
Uh, anything that comes around, we try them because they, our growers usually ask for us to make sure we kind of try different products. To date, and I've been doing this now for this is my 24th season, I have not had any uh, biological product that has kind of helped us. Uh, will we give up? No, we'll continue to look. We'll continue to maybe do some combination, maybe use some combination of um, some biologicals with some fungicides that are compatible and see if they will help. But unfortunately, uh, we have not seen anything to date that has been um, useful for us. Well, we certainly appreciate all the research that you do. Again, uh, for anybody listening, we're talking with Muhammad Khan here up at North Dakota State University. Uh, just a ton of research work gets done on sugar beets, and, and North Dakota State does a really nice job with that. Uh, okay, Muhammad, a uh, few things about sugar beets. Uh, a lot of our listeners aren't in areas where sugar beets are grown, and I've always found it interesting that if we harvest corn or soybeans or wheat, uh, we can haul them to a buyer right right at harvest time, put them in a bin or put them on a rail car. Everything's great. But sugar beets, I see these huge piles anywhere around sugar beet plants. Talk to us about that piling process. And I know there's a lot of uh, science and a lot of experience that's gone into uh, how do we how do we keep those piles in the best shape? What are, what are some of the techniques that farmers are using as they're harvesting to try to make sure their crop stores well and is usable throughout the season? All right. So, uh, for sugar beets in the valley here, we typically start planting around April, and by around um, middle of August, we start harvesting. In 2022, because it was so dry, especially in sort of North Dakota, it was one of our latest planted sugar beet crop. Some beets were planted around the 4th or 5th of July. And we started a few a week or so later, so around uh, the 20th or so of August, we started harvesting. In pre-pile, the bees that are harvested, harvested are processed within two to three days. So they are not stored. From around October 1st, when the night temperatures and the day temperatures become cooler, so the beetroots are about 55 degrees or lower in temperature, we start harvesting. Right now we're harvesting and we'll probably finish anywhere between 50 to 75% in the southern Minnesota areas to the American crystal areas, respectively. And what we do, we kind of, our uh, managers at the co-op manage the beets in such a way that we process that beet from October through next year, around May or June. The ones that will be processed last, May and June, they are put into huge uh, sheds, and then we take coal air from the outside and freeze the beets in those, in, in those sheds. So they will be the last to be processed, and they, they will give you probably your highest sugar when you're ready to process those. The remaining beets that will be processed from October through April and May, they are uh, treated differently based on how those that will be processed, let's say, from now to December. Uh, some of those will be placed in piles with very limited ventilation and covering. Uh, those that will be processed, let's say, from January through April, uh, they will be placed in ventilated piles where we're using ventilation as well as some uh, cooling to make sure that those piles are, are kept cool as well as they are uh, covered uh, with some special tarps to reflect the sunlight so you have uh, less damage by the sun. Yeah, the, main strategy, the main strategy is to kind of, the beets when we harvest them, they are still alive, so we need to keep their respiration rate as low as possible. Uh, if you can keep them at um, 
32 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, that will be ideal. Um, when we freeze them, of course, they kind of go lower than that, minus 20 degrees, so that those are okay. Uh, the rest of them, we kind of try to keep them as low as possible so that when they uh, are respiring, they're using up our sugar that was formed during the growing season. We try to prevent and reduce that restoration oh, rate. It makes it makes a lot of sense, and it's a, it's really interesting seeing these beet piles up across North Dakota. Uh, we've been talking with Mohammed Khan with North Dakota State. Mohammed, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate it. What's new from New Farm? Leopard Herbicide brings you exceptional planting flexibility for soybeans, field corn, and cotton. Leopard provides your spray plans with a fall or early spring option to boost resistance management. And did we mention it's a highly compatible tank mix partner due to its ultra-low use rate? Ask your dealer for Leopard Herbicide. Available for fall. Applying fallen hydras? You know the challenges. Too warm, too wet, too cold. Hi, I'm Greg Souter at 360 Yield Center. I've shifted my nitrogen application to spring and summer. By applying my base of N with the planter, I'm putting it near the seed right before the plant needs it. Then I wide drop at V10 and apply exactly what the crop needs. Don't push an application window and risk losing your nitrogen. Learn more about a base plus nitrogen strategy at 360yieldcenter.com. When it comes to mites in your field, you can't afford a solution that might work. That's why there's Zeopro Miticide from Valent USA. With next level knockdown and long residual control, you can be sure to handle spider mites at all stages of life with complete certainty. With efficient translaminar activity, apply by ground or air, and confidently attack mites where they are. Make Zeopro the definitive answer to your mite problem. Visit valent.com slash zealpro to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. At Corteva AgriScience, we want to keep farms healthy and productive, today and tomorrow. That's why we're investing in a robust pipeline of naturally derived biologicals. Meet Nutritia N Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer. It's a sustainable nitrogen fixation product that facilitates crop growth and optimizes yield potential. With the fluctuation in fertilizer prices, Nutritia N is a reliable solution. It can be used alongside your traditional nitrogen program to enhance your ROI this year. For more information, visit Corteva.us. Every week for more than two decades, AgPhD TV has provided agronomic information to make your farm more productive and profitable. In each episode, we discuss a wide range of topics covering everything from crop fertility, promoting soil health, improving the environment, pest control, and more, all designed to help you push your farm to higher yield goals and more profitability. Be sure to catch us on Tuesdays and Saturdays on RFD TV. Check your local listings or visit agphd.com to learn more. Go long for season-long foliar disease protection that starts at plant. Only Zyway brand fungicides from FMC provide season-long foliar disease protection from the start. Active ingredient Flutriafol moves through your corn plants as they grow for inside-out protection from roots to tassel. Growers and retailers are sharing their Zyway brand fungicide success stories at zyway.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions.
Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. And we've been talking about sugar beets. And it's fun having Muhammad Khan on. He's He just does so much research up at North Dakota State. It's just fun uh, to uh, to hear some of that. Certainly, if you look for publications, you'll just see tons of them. And we mentioned some of these things, Brian, like sclerotinia, uh, now impacting sugar beets. Uh, just another one of those things. There's always so much crossover with these crops that, okay, a lot of the things that we talk about with soybeans, uh, like sclerotinia management and uh, just this fungicide program and some of the same diseases that we see in soybeans. Now, Sarcospora, not as big a disease in soybeans as, as it is in sugar beet, uh, but it but it certainly is one of those diseases that we're concerned about. Rhizoctonia we talked about. I know Pythium can certainly be a, a challenge there, too. Just a, a lot of stuff going on. And then uh, one other thing. Yeah, but stop. When, when, you, when you talk about all those diseases, Let's think about where we have problems with pythium and with sclerotinia. And I mean, a lot of these things are not just caused out of, from happenstance. What I'm saying here is management techniques can make an absolute difference. So if you're counting on, well, I'm just trying to find the right variety and that's going to solve all my problems. There aren't many varieties out there that are going to be great on all kinds of diseases. So what we're saying is if you improve the drainage, you improve your overall soil fertility program, you balance your soil nutrients, not just have a whole bunch of NP and K, but let's focus on the micros and look at how much calcium's in your soil and everything else. So you do all the other steps and then you should have less disease pressure and crops that are more resilient. So if they do get hit by some disease that you weren't counting on, at least the yield damage isn't going to be completely crushing. Well, there, there's just a lot going on. And, and I did ask about the natural products. And so many of these things are new uh, that it's hard to to get in front of them. I, I know Muhammad talks about all the things they're doing research on. It's certainly something that we're going to see more of, especially you know, there's a lot of growers looking for other other ways to do it. There, there's a lot of pesticides that end up getting used in, in sugar beet crops. If, if there's some naturals that could help along the way, it should be a nice thing. All right, let's get back to the Ag PhD mailbag. What you got next? All right. Uh, this one from John in Maryland, and he said, guys, uh, I sent you a link to some research on cloud forest plants and thought you might be interested in this, particularly uh, a couple of things here where in the abstract they say, we demonstrate for the first time that fog water is not only absorbed by leaves, also transported through the xylem to below ground components in the plant, probably mycorrhizal hyphae and rhizosphere soil when plants are simultaneously exposed to fog and dry soil. Okay, so this is one of the things that we've talked about for years, that just the humidity level that we have in eastern South Dakota, we oftentimes will get similar rainfall to central South Dakota. I'm not saying always, but often we get similar rainfall, we have a lot better yield. Why is that? And people say, well, your soil is just better and stuff. And I go, no, it's humidity. I mean, you look at just the dew, so you can talk fog or dew, whatever, I don't care. Our belief has always been that that has gotten absorbed in and gone down into the plant and helped the plant. Now, to say it's with the xylem, everything I've always understood about the xylem is it only moves stuff upward. So I don't know how the xylem would all of a sudden now move stuff down. Now, if it moved in the phloem, that I could understand. So anyway, yeah, it's kind of interesting. However it happens, I guess... I don't really care. I just know that humidity, fog, those kind of things can help our plants get through some of these tough, dry years. 
All right. Thanks for the question. We appreciate that. Uh, get this one in from Glenn over in Georgia. And he said, guys, I'm attaching my recent sweet corn grade and picture. And he's got for, for listeners here, uh, he's got husks that are, that have some discoloration. I'm like, uh, some bleached out spots. Yeah. And then it looks like some tip back on the ears as well. Yeah, one of the first things I thought of was sun scald, but I I assume it is not that. I don't know what's causing the problem there. And did we get any soil tests with that or anything? No, we didn't yeah. get any soil tests, but if we've got poorly filled tips, a lot of times on corn we've run short of something. Yes. And that, boron is often one of the things that we're short on, but if we're short on moisture, uh, we could be short on other things too that we just weren't able to pull in, even if they were out there in the soil. Right. So, yeah, I don't know what's causing that, what kind of looks like bleaching on the husk. I'm I'm not really sure. So it it could be a wide variety of things. Yeah, I I don't know. I wish they had, I wish I had the answer for you. But if you want to send us your soil test, we could certainly take a look at that. Maybe something would stand out to us there. Doesn't necessarily look like disease. I didn't think, Darren. But no, maybe not disease. It is. I I don't know. I just thought about hot. Uh, yeah, heat and right. sun a right, lot of right, times. Right, exactly. We have some issues, or or if there's a weather issue where uh, stuff got beat up a little bit that way I, too. I wonder. So he sent us these pictures, and it's just showing one side of those corn husks. I wonder, are all the sides affected the same? Because that would lead me more toward, yeah, exactly what you said, and what I had mentioned earlier too, sun scald or something like that. Okay. Well, thanks for the question, Glenn. Uh, we get a bunch of soil tests here, Brian. I think we might have enough time to get a start on this. And if we don't, we can finish up after the break. This one came in from Cade. And he said, hi, guys. I recently became a listener of your show. And uh, today I was listening to uh, something you guys were saying about potassium. And it got me thinking. The ground we work is pretty variable. And I'm sending you my soil <laughs> test. So you will see that variability. That's a common theme that we, we talk we about rent on the about show half here, and we own about half of the ground that we're farming. And... Uh, the rented fields are lighter soil, and the the ground that we own is typically a little bit better soil. Hey, let me let me stop it right there. I don't know what questions you have, but very often when it's owned ground, I think for a lot of us as farmers, we say, "Well, just throw extra fertilizer out there. We're fine." And in most cases, we are. But on that rented ground, we hate to throw extra fertilizer out because we never know if we're going to keep the ground. So this is one of the discussions we've had with our landlords to say, look, let me show you your soil tests. Here's what we're finding on your ground. And the problem is if I put a bunch of, I don't care what it is, P or K or almost anything, I can't fully extract that in one year. So I can build your soil up, but either I need a few more years to mine that back out of your soil or... I need some help on this so I can afford because afford it because fertilizer is really expensive. So just looking on his test, he's got somewhere he's got six percent base saturation K and the three hundreds to four hundreds parts per million on K. So I'm guessing that's probably the ground he owns. And then he's got some other stuff that it's one or two percent base saturation K. And by the way, your lab is rounding it to the nearest one. So for example, it's just saying one percent or three percent. Well, if it's 1.4%, that's a lot different than 0.6%. And both of those would get rounded to one. You see where I'm going with this. So I'd talk to your lab and I'd say, you know, I, I'd really kind of like it if you rounded it to the nearest tenth instead of rounded it to the nearest whole number. 
Okay, so Kate asks, uh, it's my first year of farming on my own here, and just kind of curious, you guys talk about balancing soils out, so several questions along those lines. Uh, we, You can see we don't have very many soils that are 4% base saturation K, so I know that's one number that you shoot for. What are some of the other parts per million or base saturation percentage goals that you have for soils? Uh, and then I, I have additional questions on potassium and nitrogen. Well... I can't really tell you for sure. And the reason why is because we don't know what your crop is, yield goal, I mean, a lot of things. So I'll I'll just tell you on our farm what I'm shooting for based on our soil tests. When I look at a Malik, that's going to be like a P2 or a strong brace. That's going to be a lot different than an Olsen test or a P1, for example. Those numbers are going to come in lower. So like a Malik, I'd like our phosphorus levels to all be 100 parts per million or more, maybe even a little more than that. For for the yield levels that we're shooting for. Right, exactly. And for our heavy soil, I don't have to, and, and especially if I put the phosphorus down in the ground, I don't have to worry about it washing away and things like that. And boron, like with all the calcium we have, so you only have about 1,500 parts per million of calcium. So you can't go a whole lot more than 1.5 parts per million or so on boron, one one thousandth of the calcium. Well, we've got some soils where I can go three, four, five parts per million on boron and and do something like that. So that's where we got to be a little bit careful. All right, we'll dig into a few more of Cade's questions here, but we also have time for your questions. Our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD, and you can also email us or instead email us if you'd like, radio at agphd.com. We'll be right back. You can count on AgroLiquid for precision crop nutrition. When you don't get all your potash down in the fall, when weather or market prices change your management strategy, or when you want to balance your fertilizer program with micronutrients, AgroLiquid is ready with the products and application flexibility you want for in-season crop nutrition and the research-proven results you need. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Don't turn your fertilizer application plan into a guessing game. Understand exactly how much fertility you need to reach your yield goals with the AgPHD Fertilizer Removal App. Simply enter your crop and your yield goal and the AgPHD Fertilizer Removal App calculates the amount of nutrition needed to keep your crop healthy and working for you. Quit playing guessing games with your fertility needs. Download the AgPHD Fertilizer Removal App today. Available on the Apple App Store and in Google Play. This is Stormy Fields with your weather forecast. Today calls for a high of 68 degrees with sunny skies and not a cloud in sight. Planting windows can close fast, so when you need both speed and accuracy, choose John Deere. Our exact Emerge planters and precision ag technologies give you precise seed placement for uniform emergence and the efficiency you need to gain ground. See what you have to gain at johndeere.com slash gain ground. Just because your combine is one brand doesn't mean its cornhead should be the same, especially when it costs you yield. Drago cornheads are engineered to harvest more. Lowest profile saves ears, self-adjusting deck plates save kernels, longer knife rollers reduce trash, and aggressive gathering chains pick up stocks. No other cornhead works like a Drago or pays you back like one. See more features and find your Drago dealer at dragotech.com. AgPHD has one mission, to 
give you the knowledge you need to make your farm more successful. That's why every issue of the Ag PhD Insider magazine features crop fertility and pest management tips, insights into the world's highest yielding farmers, updates and results from our in-field research trials, as well as the latest agronomy information from Brian and Darren Hefty. We put it all in one place so you can make your farm more productive and profitable. Subscribe to the Ag PhD Insider at agphdinsider.com. In a world of Veltima fungicide. Hey, let's do it less dramatic. Just say Veltima fungicide. Okay, Veltima fungicide. No, that's literally the same. Veltima fungicide. Still doing it. Veltima fungicide does it. Seriously, we just need you to say Veltima fungicide. Swift, simple, and secure. Didn't I? Veltima fungicide from BASF in cornfields this summer. Always read and follow label directions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag. And just before the break, we were talking about this question that Cade had sent in. Uh, Cade uh, just starting to farm on his own, making all those decisions, and uh, wanted to get some more information on soil tests. I think, hey, Cade, first of all, I think that's a great way to get going, to understand your ground, understand what you can do to influence yield. I mean, obviously, we've got to control weeds and insects and diseases and and do all those things with plant growth and development to try to maximize production. But uh, giving all the food that that plant needs is is a really important thing. Uh, Kate said, okay, guys, uh, most of my rented fields are hilly, stony, sandy, low CEC soils. And my thought was still to put some potash down pre-pent like we normally do, but but then also put some liquid potassium on in a two by two by two and also do a little bit with some Y drops. I don't have any tissue samples to tell me that I'm low, but I I'm just low on the soil test, so I'm probably not getting enough K. What do you think about that on rented ground? How do you handle that differently than ground you own? Okay, so first of all, when you've got really low fertility, I don't care if it's P or K or whatever it is, and let's say it is rented ground. The first thing that I will usually tell people is banding is going to give you a much faster response than broadcast. Two, liquid is going to give you a much faster response than dry. Now, it's going to vary a little bit in that, like where we farm, I mean... We might have four inches of rain during the growing season. So that dry, especially if you put it on in the spring, uh, yeah, it's not breaking down very well this year. But in another area that might have 40 inches of rain during the growing season, well, it could all break down. I don't know. But I'm just saying for faster uptake, especially early in the spring, liquid is great. So we'll use some liquid to feed the plant almost all the time. And then we'll use dry to build the soil test. So it just kind of depends on what we're after. But... As long as you're on, I'd call it at least a little bit of a build program, it doesn't have to be a lot, but at least a little bit of a build program, then you should be doing fairly well. So we've really kind of been able to prove this out to some degree on our own farm. As long as we're pushing it, and granted, we might be really terribly short, but as long as we're putting on more than that crop should use during the growing season... Um, I'm not going to say we're going to do as well as we are in our fields where we have loaded them up for years and they're in fantastic shape and super high in everything and well balanced. But at least you're going to get yourself a lot further than just going crop removal and that's it. So just be careful on what you're doing. But again, I'd come back to rented ground. 
just have the discussion with the landlord. I think a lot, I feel like a lot of people are afraid to talk to the landlord about any problems with the field or if they have to put extra things on, whether it's lime or fertilizer or whatever. But there are a lot of landlords that are pretty understanding if you just kind of lay it out to them and say, look, here's what's going on. Here's how I'd like to do it. Here's what I'm doing on the ground I own. I just, I don't feel like I can do that because I'm so worried that I'm going to spend an extra $300 on fertilizer over the next three years to build your soil up and then somebody else is going to reap the reward and I lost 300 bucks. Yeah. Um, okay. Last two things. Uh, nitrogen. He said, I'm also concerned about nitrogen loss in lighter soils. Does that yep. necessarily mean I've got to put on multiple applications? Are there stabilizers that I should use every time? What, what would be your recommendation? Well, yeah, you can use stabilizers. That's going to help some, but if like on a lot of these cation exchange capacities, just as an example, I'm looking at, okay, here are several that are 13, 14 CEC, and then you got some down to 11. Okay, well, if you're at 11 or even 13, that's 110, 130 pounds. That's about all your soil can hold. And if you go, well, I'm going for 220 bushel corn. I got to get 220 pounds of nitrogen out there or more. Um, yeah, you can't do that in one shot. There's no stabilizer in the world that's going to hold an extra 100 pounds for two months or something like that. So you just have to be a little realistic with this on what your expectation is. So if you want to push it a little bit and use a stabilizer, fine. But if we're talking double rate, yeah, a stabilizer can't do that. You have to split in those cases. All right. And then the last thing I just wanted to comment, Cade's soil tests were from 2019. So that would be something too, Cade. You know, the the big nutrients like NP and K and sulfur, uh, those pounds, I don't trust at all from that long ago if you've been raising crops out there. I don't know what you put out, what you've taken off, those kinds of things. So you're going to need some new data. Now, in terms of cation exchange capacity, that's not going to change a whole lot. So that and organic matter is probably pretty similar to those tests. Even some of the micros, you just don't use that many pounds of them. So those numbers might be okay, but... Uh, NPK and sulfur for sure, uh, tests that are two or three years old, uh, that data is pretty unreliable. So any of the things that we're talking about here in terms of pounds, uh, it's, it's just for conversation, uh, just to, to get you thinking down the right path. If you got new tests, if you get more questions, uh, please feel free to reach out. We'd, we, uh, would be happy to help. All right, Brian, got one from uh rr who said guys i am having i'm down in central texas and i've got a weed that i just think is like a pretty invasive here and i don't know what what it is well, it looks like a tree to me doesn't well, it it's, it's small... these lighter colored things i'm assuming there oh, so on the tree no 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 it's it it's, is the tree no it's a plant that's probably three feet tall it's it's a tough picture to see rr uh Oh, okay. It's see, just a re- okay. So he's got the camera. Yes, rig- it's it really close like up, but you can see like everything bigger. in the background. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah. I I can't really I, tell. Exactly I can't what tell that either is. from the picture. So uh, we apologize. We we really don't what, know from that. Okay. So what? I, here's what I would do. If if I can't identify a weed, sometime. Well, I just called Darren. But anyway, usually if you can't identify weed, bring it to somebody, an agronomist, an extension yeah, agent. Yeah, extension agent would be a good good place to go. Yes, And you're in somebody. Texas, so you've got them. So that that's what I would do. Bring it to your local county extension agent. Yeah, and, and then let us know what you find out and what the weed is, and then we can help you. Yeah, we'd, we'd be happy to help. It's just, it's just, it's tough to tell from that picture. And then- yeah. 
Uh, I don't know. In Texas, there are a few different weeds. It looks like that's an area that could be hot and dry. And yeah, there's some different weeds. I know like even in our state, South Dakota, in Western South Dakota, there's some weeds we just don't even see on the east side of the state. So uh, we, we might not be the expert in, in every one of them. Uh, Beth sent in a, an email here and she, she said, my daughter is going to college for ag education. And I was just happened to be watching your show on RFD TV and heard there are opportunities for scholarships. Uh, when do you do scholarship opportunities throughout the season? Yeah, we have one scholarship event. It is the last Saturday in June each year. We call it scouting and scholarships. And basically you have to attend in person. So we've, we've set this up basically for people who are going to, if I'm using the term right, post-secondary school. So I don't care if it's a what we would call Votech around here, college, university, whatever it is. It's the after high school thing and that next schooling. And I'm trying to think of how many, do you remember how many scholarships we gave away this year, Darren? 50, 60, something like that? I don't know. It was quite a few. But anyway, what, what we do is spend a day in the field and in the classroom on that Saturday. And then at the end of the day, we basically draw for uh, from all the people that are there. And uh, I mean, our goal at some point, we'd like to get it to the point where everybody who comes could get a scholarship from us. So we're going to continue the fundraising side on that end of things and talking to some different companies and partners and everything else. And even for us here at Ag PhD, we gave, uh, I mean, a lot of those were directly from us. So anyway, that's the one thing that we do each year to try to support that next generation getting into ag. Hey, thanks for the question, Beth, and good luck to your daughter as well. Got this from Dylan down in New Mexico. He said, guys, I, I uh, have leased some ground. It's about 800 acres of dry land and pretty sandy. We don't get a whole lot of rainfall. It, it was in CRP for 25 years before I broke it this year. I want to get some soil tests. And I got a few questions. I'm planning on sending them to Midwest Labs, but they have a lot of different tests that I can choose from. Just curious, which test should I pick? Which one's the most helpful? And then I was also thinking about doing it in larger grids, like 40 acres, uh, to help with the cost. That would still end up being 20 different grid points out there. Just curious what you guys think and which uh, which test I should run. Okay, I'd run the S3C, I believe they call it, Malik. Yeah, S3CM. Yeah, S3CM. So make sure it's the Malik version that you're getting. That's a lot cheaper. Uh, So I don't know what it's going to cost exactly. Let's say it's $12. It's something like that. I I don't like the idea of big grids or zones. Yeah, I'd spend 1000 bucks. Make it smaller grids, maybe even 10-acre grids at this point, but just get some more data to work with. Yeah, and at least in one block, do one-acre grids. So even if it's just 10 or 20 acres, do one-acre grids there. So that way you can see, then you can see what the average is, and you also see your range, and hopefully that'll show you in the future. You probably want small grids as much as you can. Thanks for the question, Dylan. We really appreciate that. And thanks to you for listening today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.